Well, we are starting a, a new series, as Pastor Nathan has noted, and with, with much fear and trembling, we are making our way into the book of Esther. Honestly, it's not one that I've heard preached often in a congregational setting. It's one of those things that maybe you, you do in a Bible study where you have some time to, to dig in and dig around and kind of figure out what's there. But as Pastor Nathan has noted, uh, there's a notable absence in explicit mentions in the story that makes it somewhat difficult to navigate or um, makes it a pastor a little nervous to try to navigate, to find what's going on there. But I've never been afraid of that, so we're jumping in and seeing where exactly this takes us in the weeks ahead. But it, it did bring up a thought to me this week as I was studying and thinking in my office. Uh, have you ever played the game as a kid, uh, Where's Waldo? Anybody played that game, Where's Waldo, or seen that? It's a pretty awesome game. Do we have the graphic to go up here, Nathan? Um, yeah, right? So th this is a Where's Waldo picture. And, and, you know, if you were to see Waldo in the public eye, if you're out walking around and you were to find someone dressed as Waldo, you would have no problem. I can see you all like, where's he at? Follow with me for a second here. If Waldo is in the public right now in this church, you would all recognize him, right? Because Waldo wears a, a bright red and, and white striped hat with a red ball on the top and bright red and white shirt and blue pants with a little bit of hair peeking out the front and some big glasses. He's, he's a very iconic, notable individual. But when you, when you put Waldo in a, a phrase like, frame like this, where you got like these 19 whatever bathing suits that are all red and white and striped and, and going up. I promise you he is in there, but I can't remember exactly where myself. But, but you could sit and look at this for quite some time and, and eventually, hopefully, you would see Waldo. But when you look, uh, perhaps if you play the game and you're, you're looking at one of those pictures, it's easy to think he cannot be there. He cannot be there. You, have you ever done that where you're looking at the page and you just keep looking and looking and looking and you've scoured every inch in, uh, of it? You know, I've taken a ruler and laid it across and taken my hand across and somehow still missed Waldo. But that's the premise of the game, like, right? Is the, the whole idea of the game, where's Waldo, is that you find Waldo, which means subsequently, consequently, that what? Waldo is there, Right? You, you may not be able to immediately pull him out of the picture. You may not immediately be able to look and say, ah, there he is. But, but Waldo is in that picture somewhere. And I was wondering as I was thinking about Esther, isn't that how life is with God sometimes? Isn't it sometimes uh, the case where, where we're walking around and, and things are difficult and there's chaos and there's confusion around us and we're busy and we're running a bunch of d different directions? Perhaps it's even like a beach scene. It's a good thing. Like, good things are happening in your life. But, but as a result of all that life brings your way, it's hard to see God in the midst of it. And maybe even in good times, sometimes it doesn't feel so good down deep inside of us. And we step back and we look and we're like, God, where are you? That's particularly true, though, in bad times, isn't it? When things are dark, things are difficult, there's struggle and storm surrounding us. We often pull back and look at the reality of our experiences and, and, and the difficulty that's before us. And we, we maybe even do the, the quintessential thing where we look to the heavens and say, God, where are you? Sometimes it feels like we're playing a game of where's Waldo with God himself. But God has promised in his word that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. God has promised that he will be present with us wherever we go. And in Deuteronomy 3, 31, 6 through 8, and, and then again in Hebrews 13, 5, we see that God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of whatever you face in this life because I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus promises before he ascends into the heavens, leaving the disciples on earth. He says, look, I will be with you to the very end of the age. It seems a little contradictory that right before Jesus ascends that he tells us that he'll be with us. But he's also promised that he would send his Holy Spirit that, that would live within us. That wouldn't just be with us, but be, would be within us. That we would never be without God's presence. Psalm 139 is a very poignant reminder as well, isn't it? Where it talks about, where can I go, O oh God, to escape your presence? 
Where can I go? If I go up to the heavens, you're still there. If I'm down in the depths, you're still there. If I go from east to west, God, you are still there. No matter what I face or where I go, God is there. God's word is true and trustworthy, is it not? If that's the case, even when God isn't easy to see, even when his presence or his fingerprints aren't easy to find, we can trust that God is still there actively working to bring about his plan and purpose and to provide the salvation that he has promised for his people. You and I, though, have to learn to look for him. We've got to learn to to discern and see, perhaps with different and more, more focused eyes, to find where God is. And that's where we are going with, with the book of Esther. According to rabbinic tradition, the book of Esther was to be read, quote, as a book of divine concealment. A book of divine concealment. Much like a game of Where's Waldo. That God is there, just not right on the surface. So the job of the reader, the job of the listener then was, was to, to discern where God was, where was God concealed within the story. Again, God is never explicitly mentioned in the book of Esther. I mean, think about the times that you've heard Esther referenced in a message. You probably have heard it referenced with the famous passage where Mordecai speaks to Esther and says, Who knows, perhaps God has called you for such a time as this. That is the Esther message, right? That's the, that, I've preached it. I've preached it. You, I've heard it in youth groups. I've heard it in churches. That is the Esther message. Perhaps God has called you for such a time as this. But God is not explicitly mentioned in there. We, we assume, we, we overlay into the story the reality of God's presence because we know that it's there. If we look carefully throughout the book of Esther, we can see the hand of God working and moving throughout. We can see God utilizing struggles and very difficult situations presented and, and bringing about amazing reversals to punish the proud and self-serving and elevate the humble and gracious. Esther presents what is often called a theology for the diaspora. A theology for people spread throughout the world. What that's focusing on is, is this people that is, has been sent out into, into to exile. People removed from their symbols and their signs and their spaces of faith. Their, their temple destroyed. Their, their, their favored position lost. And so for a people that is spread in a wicked world that often stands against the, the truth that they hold to, what do we do? What does that kind of a people do? Esther helps us to learn to see God in the struggle of living in a sin-saturated, self-seeking and self-serving world. And to discern what he requires of us and how we can best serve him in the struggle. And as we go through the book of Esther, I want you to continuously ask three questions that I've given you in the notes today. If you don't have the notes, I invite you to write this down and to keep it with you as we go throughout the series. I invite you to read the book of Esther at home and consider these three questions. First, where do I see God moving in the world? Maybe if we applied it directly to the text, where do I see God moving in this text? But more importantly, what we're going to learn from this is where do I see God moving in my life? Whether it's sunshine in the beaches or, or it's the difficulty of, of a storm. Where is God moving in the world? Second, what does God require of me at such a time as this? What does God require of me at such a time as this? And third, will I faithfully serve him in the midst of the struggles? Let's add on to that. 
Will I faithfully serve him in the midst of the successes? Where do I see God moving in the world? What does God require of me at such a time as this? And will I faithfully serve him in the midst of the struggles? As we turn our attention to the text this morning, let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking that he will reveal the truth of his word to us. Father God, I pray that you would be with us in these moments as we, we journey into this text and as we explore this narrative. And Lord, though it is set up as a game in our world with Where's Waldo, Lord, it's not a game for us. Help, help us to understand the, the importance of this exercise. And may we in these moments, as we look at your truth, look for where you are. As we read stories of, of scheming and self-aggrandizing and deception and difficulty and persecution. May we also see your hand providentially moving to bring about your sovereign will, to provide for your promise, to bring about the ultimate deliverance of your people for our good and for your glory. God, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Esther chapter 1. And we're going to read through this text a little bit differently than what I normally do today. We are going to read the entirety of the text, but I'm not going to read it all at the beginning. We're going to take it in chunks. So we're going to read through the part that we're going to look at. We're going to look at it, and then we'll go on to the next part. So we're going to start right now with verses 1 through 4. Esther 1, 1 through 4. And it says this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. So we see this, this passage start with, with what's going to be one of the main characters of the story. King Xerxes. And King Xerxes gives us an important uh, theme that we're going to see throughout the reality of this story as we continue through Esther. The, the importance of recognizing who really sits on the throne of our lives. The importance of discerning who is it that's really in control. Who's really the one that, that, it, that is making things move and making things happen. Because we see here in the text that Xerxes believes it's Xerxes. I mean, look at the text. We see in the, in the first few verses, we see his name no less than three times. When life is good, we, we like to imagine that we're more than we are, don't we? It's easy to get caught up when things are good and to think that we did it. Look what I did. Look what I achieved. Look, look what I've built with my life. I even remember, I think I've told the story before, being with a pastor in West Virginia who had a big church. They were doing amazing ministry, and they were so big, they had grown so much that they had a big church building that was the church proper on one side of the street that was about two and a half blocks long of just building. And then across the street was another building that was another two and a half blocks long. And I remember standing in the parking lot with that pastor one time as he's talking to me. It was shortly after I'd moved to the area. And I remember the pastor taking his arms and waving them at the two buildings and said, Look at what I've built. Look at what I've built. And I remember thinking, I need to make some space. And I make light of that, but I remember it, it making me feel, to use an academic term, icky inside. Look what I've built. I have to be honest, there are times where, where in my own life I've felt, I may not have said the words exactly like that. Maybe you wouldn't say the words exactly like that, but is the temptation not strong? 
when life is good and things are working, to look at the reality of what's going on around us, to look at our great career, to look at our great family, to look at, at all of our possessions, to look at all of our notoriety in the community and to say, look what I've done. Look who I am. We take the old hymn and we, we change the words. How great I art. Who doesn't enjoy basking in the sun of their own greatness? And that's what we have here with King Xerxes. Xerxes loves him some Xerxes. And he is basking in all of the glory of his greatness. And the story starts out as a once upon a time type story. With a great king. And eventually a princess. And that, that's the wording that we see here. The book of, of Esther starts with the phrase, and it happened in those days. Now that's not the way it reads in our NIV text. It, it says, this is what happened in the time of Xerxes. I like the old school version better because it, it gives a more pronounced, there's a story coming. It, it happened in those days, in the days of Xerxes. Now you want to know something. If you look throughout the Old Testament, when you see the phrase, and it happened in those days, what is to follow? is never good. And it happened in the days of Noah. Not good, right? And it happened in the days of Daniel. Not good. Homie's got a, an appointment with some big kitties, right? Like this is not good. Same thing is true here. It's a, it's a once upon a time. Have you ever considered some of our fairy tales? Like, like, not the way that Disney has prettied them up. They're great on Disney. I, I went and looked this week at some of our fairy tales to see what they really were. And I learned that once upon a time doesn't usually end with, and they lived happily ever after. Did you know that most of the fairy tales featured in some of our favorite Disney classics were originally not positive. Now, you, if your children are going to be offended by this, they can plug their ears, but I'm going to tell you the truth this morning. So if you love any Disney stories, plug your ears. Did you know that in the original tellings by people like Brothers Grimm, and their name should be a warning to us, Brothers Grimm, things get really dark. For instance, did you know that in most of the original telling of Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket appears as a ghost. You know why? Because Pinocchio kills him. He's sick of listening to his conscience. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? You got a conscience constantly chirping at you, you squash him. Well, now he's, he's a ghost on your shoulder. You can't get rid of him. But, and Pinocchio ends poorly. Did you know that in Cinderella... She actually loses her shoe because the prince set a trap for her to keep her from leaving the palace. Now, a girl should have seen that as a red flag, right? And boy trying to trap you, this is not a good thing. I don't care what crown is on his head. Further, in the original story, the sisters, and there is a version like this, the sisters are so desperate to be the prince's true love that they actually, one sister hacks off her toes and the other hacks off her heel. And then it doesn't end there for them. At the end, the sisters are following Cinderella into her wedding and they're chirping in the background and the birds have had enough, so they peck out their eyes. <laughs> Why didn't Disney include that in the movie? <laughs> Did you know that in the story of Rapunzel, Rapunzel and the prince, they, they come together and they have twins. And Madame Gothel is so furious about it that she cuts Rapunzel's hair, she throws her out of the tower and sends her and her twins off in the desert to die. Now they don't die. The prince comes looking for them climbs the tower, and Mother Gothel does something to him, throws him out of the tower, and he becomes so injured that he becomes blinded. And for the rest of the story, Rapunzel and her prince wander the desert complaining about what a terrible Mother Gothel was. Makes sense. <laughs> Finally, in The Little Mermaid, 
The little mermaid gives up her voice and gets her legs. And the truth is the legs hurt to walk on. And she, she works so hard to fall in love with the prince and, and get the prince to fall in love with her. And in the Disney account, eventually she does, right? Not in the original story. In the original story, the prince is like, nah, this ain't working for me. He leaves her behind and she dies and turns into seafoam. Now, Disney does have a new live-action version coming out, so I'm holding out some hope. Why do I tell you all that? We like to think once upon a time with a prince and a king and a queen ends with happily ever after. And sometimes, maybe it does. But even in the best Disney version, isn't there a whole lot of difficulty and darkness to get there? Once upon a time does not always mean happily ever after. Difficulty is a reality of life. Xerxes, we start with this beginning of the story starts about as high as it's going to start for King Xerxes. And it's going to quickly descend. Xerxes was, in fact, a very powerful king. This is not just a made-up story like the Brothers Grimm. This is historical fact. You can go and read Herodotus, who was a Greek historian, and you can read details about King Xerxes that will align with what we see in the text. For instance, the third year of the reign of Xerxes, right? Mentions it in the text. We can go back and find out where that is. According to historical record, the third year of the the reign of King Xerxes was around 483 B.C. He was approximately 35 years of age at the time. And the text tells us that King Xerxes throws this massive soiree, this incredible rager of a party, right? The party lasted 180 years. Days. And the point of the party was to display his wealth and power. The first word when it talks about this portion of it is showing, which is accurate, isn't it? So much of what deals with Xerxes here in this first chapter revolves around him showing. Xerxes is showing out and showing off. He is putting all of his great wealth on display, inviting everybody into the capital city of Susa so they can see what a great and powerful and rich king that he is. And we actually know historically, looking back, that Xerxes actually did have a war council in 483 B.C. This serves a political purpose as well. The whole point of Xerxes showing all of his great wealth is to convince all of his nobles and princes, hey, if we go to war, I can pay you for it. I can reward you greatly if you come along with me. And I'm worth following. If we, if we might borrow a phrase from, from the kids today, King Xerxes is flexing on them. This is not a weird flex. This is an incredible flex. Do the math on that. 180 days. How long is that? Six months. Six months of free buffet for whoever comes. And we could do the math. This is thousands of people traipsing their way through the capital city, checking out all of Xerxes' stuff. Six months of the best food, six months of the best accommodations, six months of the best entertainment, six months of all of the best stuff you can imagine. My guy makes Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk look like poppers. Can you imagine being so wildly and incredibly wealthy and powerful that you have enough stuff that you own to maintain interest for six months. I mean, I can invite you to my house today. And I'm just going to tell you, I don't know that I could cover 180 minutes in interesting stuff. Xerxes got 180 days worth of swag. It's been said that everyone is the main character of their own story. When we live our own stories for our own glory, we often turn from hero to villain, though. And our happily ever afters turn into tragedies. The only king and the only person with, for whom Xerxes really seems concerned in this text is Xerxes. 
We see that continuing on. We've got the 180-day party for King Xerxes. Let's go back to the text, starting in verse 5. And it says this, When these 180 days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days. And he had this banquet in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of puffery, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. And wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the liberality of the king. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when the king Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded seven eunuchs who served him. You can read their names on your own. To bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles. For she was lovely to look at. Now we see things are are beginning, they're going to turn here. We see Xerxes now extending his party for another seven days. Now you'll notice that the guest list is slightly different. 180 days is for all of the princes and everybody in all of the provinces and all of the regions that he ruled. This final seven days is kind of a thank you for the, the, the major players in the citadel of Susa. Anybody from the poorest to the richest was invited to come in to this amazing party. But it's still about whom? It's still about Xerxes. And I'm reminded of the Bible verse in Proverbs 16, 18, and I paraphrase, but it says, pride goes before fall. When elevation of self becomes the pri- of primary importance, others become, get reduced to tools to get us there. When the elevation of self becomes of primary importance, others are reduced to tools to lift us there. Again, he's displaying all of his wealth, and maybe it's a new category of wealth. They're all in this inner garden, and the men have one party, and the women have another party, and Xerxes is still parading all of his stuff. Did you notice that there's only one menu item mentioned at this party? Anybody notice that? It is a liquid diet. They are all just drinking wine. Everybody gets a limited edition Persian gold mug to drink from. And they are drinking it up. Not for just a few hours on one night, right? This is a seven-day rager. Seven days of bottomless wine. All you can drink in the king's courtyard. According to, again, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, Persians would only discuss and debate matters of state while drunk. Believing that their altered and inebriated state allowed them to better perceive the will of the gods. Maybe that's what's happening in D.C. these days. I apologize. I have wandered off track. Lord, forgive me for I have sinned. I'm just saying, that's an interesting political theory, right? That, hey, we've got to make a big decision of national security, of national support, importance. We've got to decide what we're doing for war. And we've got, to, we've got to have the best possible mindset possible. Let's get hammered drunk and make some decisions, boys and girls. While the men are partying in the garden, having their discussion, the leading ladies are having their own party inside the palace with Queen Vashti. Now, I'm not going to draw attention to this later, but if you notice, she is referred to for the beginning of the story as Queen Vashti. In a moment, she's going to make a, a crucial mistake in the king's eyes, and she will no longer be called Queen Vashti. She will just be Vashti. Now, interesting side note, though. 
Her name has meaning and importance. The name Vashti literally translated means beloved and the best. Verses 10 through 11, things shift. As one might imagine, after seven days of bottomless wine, the king is, quote, very nice way to put it, in high spirits. King is feeling good. He's super drunk. And he sends a delegation of seven eunuchs to go retrieve Vashti. Now you might think to yourself, why do you need seven eunuchs to go get one lady? Wouldn't one have sufficed? Well, you might argue that after seven days of drinking, seven like redundant messengers make sure that it's the right message. But there's actually a more important thing. The king is about to parade his most treasured possession in front of these men. Just so happened that a, a leader, you know, one of those weird carry things, took seven men. So Vashti's not even expected to walk in to the, the courtyard. They're going to carry her. They literally were sent to carry her to the courtyard with the king. And his goal is to parade one final possession before the men of his kingdom. And this is a serious problem. She's just another lovely thing for him that he can flaunt, that he can use for his benefit and for his aggrandizement, for his advancement, for his plan. She's just a thing to play with. She'd be the only woman in a courtyard full of drunk, powerful men. Not an appropriate place for a beautiful, treasured queen, is it? And we would be remiss if we did not point out the underlying reality of what's being said here. It is likely that when the king sent for Vashti and said, hey, bring her to me, the attire that was requested is less than appropriate. When it says... Hey, bring Queen Vashti, Vashti and her crown. It is believed that that's all that Queen Vashti was to wear. Now you can see how this is an incredibly bad situation. You can see how the wine and the high spirits of the king have, have led him to some very low, inappropriate decision making. And Vashti. Stands up for herself. She behaves with dignity and like a queen. Now there are those that would use this to argue, well, they, they should have had their domestic dispute in private. Well, that's fine. We're not going to get too lost in the whole marital thing. I would argue on the front end that the king should have treated his queen with respect. That it, what he was asking was inappropriate and it was wrong. And Vashti had the courage to stand up and say, absolutely not. <laughs> no, sir. Not going to happen. This drives the king into a posture of angry, I want to fight, brawling. It's interesting because that brings up another proverb. We started with Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before fall. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, it warns, wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Now, I'm not being a prohibitionist here. I'm not saying that if, if you take a glass of wine with your dinner that, that you are sinning. The fact is that Paul even encourages Timothy to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to have that prohibitionist conversation because I don't think the Bible supports it. But what I do think that the Bible is very clear on is that we should use discernment and we should be self-controlled. And anytime we allow a situation or a substance to control us, we have gone out of bounds. And sin is at the door. We see that happening here with the king. It's an insipid kind of hatefulness that leads a person to treat another shamefully and then feel as if they were the one shamed. Is that not exactly what happens here, though? King says, Vashti, come dance around in front of these drunk dudes. 
And Vashti says, no way. And the king says, I am offended. Who do you think you are? You have wronged me, Vashti. Which is interesting because in just a moment, we're going to see the king takes what is a domestic dispute and makes it an issue of national importance. Throughout the book of Esther, though, we see those in positions of power and honor seeking to elevate themselves on the shoulders of those that they see as less than. And it always results in their own shame. This is a problem within the human race, though, is it not? Sometimes we, we think it, it, it a good idea if we're trying to elevate ourselves and we can't get ourselves up to the level we want, we then demean and bring down someone else. We see that here in Esther. But the Bible again warns that God honors the humble and humbles the proud. More often than not, our efforts to celebrate our own greatness result in us writing our own eulogies. Rather than allowing us to climb the ladder of greatness, it turns out we're digging our own graves. It reminds me of another movie I, uh, that came out when I was in high school. One of the, the lasting images of James Cameron's classic, Titanic. One of the, the images that has lasted beyond, beyond all of time has continued, is Jack, Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Y'all know I'm talking about, standing at the front of the ship on the Titanic. And he's got his arms stretched wide and he says what? I'm the king of the world. He's feeling pretty good about himself. He's manipulated his way onto the ship. He's pitching woo to this rich girl. He's feeling pretty good about himself. Just a few moments later, though, in the movie, what happens? Old boy goes from arms stretched wide, standing in the sun, to freezing his hind end off in the North Atlantic. Is that not the reality of life? That when we in pride stretch our arms wide and talk about our own grandeur and greatness, the next we find ourselves struggling to survive through the work of our own hands. It is ironic but not at all surprising that Xerxes' excessive efforts to celebrate his own greatness and to establish his ability to lead an army ends up proving that he can't even be trusted to properly and wisely lead his own household. Isn't that the point, right? Xerxes' whole 180 days, his six months, seven-day plan to, to bring everybody into line and to show everybody what a great and powerful king he is and how worthy he is and capable he is of leading the armies of Persia into war against Greece, which consequently this war council did work because the movie 300 wouldn't have happened had it not been for this war council. They did lead into Greece. And while they won at Thermopylae, they lost at Salamis. If they'd have paid attention to the party they didn't own. King Xerxes couldn't properly manage his own feelings in his own household. How is he going to handle being at war? His efforts to aggrandize himself and to elevate himself ended up showing how lowly he really was. Matthew 23, 12 tells us those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we see that in this story with King Xerxes coming down and Esther being lifted up. Let's continue on in the story. Verses 12 and following tell us this. After the king has said no, it says, But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, mind you, it is a domestic dispute, but he's got to consult the politicians on how he legally should handle this event. He spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Again, you can read the names on your own. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who, who had special access to the king and were the highest in the kingdom. 
According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She's not obeyed the command of the king, Xerxes, that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. Can we just camp on that for a second? She said no to walking in and parading around a drunken party. And he says, she has wronged everybody. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him. But she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to the discord and disrespect. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of the per Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti, no longer Queen Vashti, is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from least to greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all other parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler over his own household using his native tongue. National emergency! The queen said no to the king. And if we don't stop this right now, great king, there is going to be a rebellion and a revolution. And we won't be able to get this kingdom under control. Notice they're only concerned about them. But somehow this is an issue of national security. They convened the council of the wisest of men to discern how King Xerxes and his wife should discuss their marital issues. It's prudent to ask for advice from wise men during tense and troubling situations. But we need to carefully consider the people we consider wise and the advice they give. We also can note in this text, who does King Xerxes and who do these wise men so-called never ask for their opinion? They don't consult any gods. They don't consult the God of the Hebrews, of whom they had known. They don't consult their own gods. They consult no one but themselves. And it makes me wonder, could our perception of God's absence actually be a result of our indifference to his power and his presence? Let me actually phrase that as a statement for you. Our perception of God's absence is often a result of our indifference to his power and his presence. It is not that God is absent in our lives. It's that we either do not recognize his presence or we do not care to. Xerxes in the text turns to the wise men who, quote, understood the times, cultural experts, legal experts. But in that moment, again, how wise can they really be? Where have these seven guys been for the last seven days? They've been at the courtyard. What have they been doing for seven days? They've been drinking it up. These are not, even if they normally were wise men, these are not the men that you want to be asking for their opinion. I mean, have you ever been around someone who is inebriated and listened to their ideas? The most Christian people I have ever met in my life are people who are incredibly drunk. And I don't mean to make mockery of it, but it's the reality. They're super spiritual in that moment. They're, 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 this, I don't do this often. I mean, I have the same conversations, and this is what we have here. These people that are super drunk talking to a super drunk king who is super angry, and we have a here hold my beer moment where they make this incredibly stupid decision. 
Now, further, these men, though, are not all that stupid. They didn't ascend to their positions by being ignorant. Notice that they are very careful what they are saying to the king, even in, in their lessened state. You don't want to offend the most powerful and wealthy man in the world. You see with, with Vashti how his disposition is changing, and you don't want to put yourself at risk. So perhaps that's why that Mamaken, when he stands before the king, says, Hey, king, it's not just you that has been shamed here. We've been shamed too. I am ashamed. You're ashamed. We're all ashamed. Everybody gets shame. He expands the scope of the offense in order to protect himself. Sharing the shame and taking the negative attention away from Xerxes, but in the process, he makes a mountain out of a proverbial molehill, and it's the wrong molehill. And he fails to confront the real issue. Only fools, drunken ones at that, would consider a domestic dispute to be a legitimate threat to the honor of the empire and the power of the king. A potential source of an uprising. What's the real primary concern here? It's not righting a wrong. It's not trying to find a path forward that's a workable relationship between the king and his queen and the subjects and their, their partners. No, the primary concern here is to, quote, please the king. To please his nobles. That they might please themselves. And as a result, they make a law that codifies the subjugation of the women of the whole kingdom. Now, there's a whole other side sermon that we could do here about the problems when patriarchy becomes too great and, and, and the subjugation and the mistreatment, the objectification of women. We don't have time to run down that path. Perhaps we will have that for a later date. But note that I do recognize it, that the ones most wronged throughout this text are the women of the kingdom. And these men in power, in love with their own greatness and their own grandeur, use the women in their lives as a hill to propel them to the top. There is a warning here, though, for us in general, that we take care to surround ourselves with people who will provide truly wise counsel, those who will tell us the truth, those who will tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. Those that will, will, will willingly hurt our feelings rather than making us feel better about ourselves in order to make us better people. And those who will draw our attention to the greatness of God Almighty that we might humbly seek his will and follow the path he has laid out for us. We don't see that anywhere in the first chapter of Esther. God seems... Completely absent in the, in the entirety of the first chapter, does he not? But we must again ask the question, is God at fault for being distant in this text or absent? Or is the issue rather the failure of the king and the wise men to acknowledge their need for God and to seek his wisdom and direction? I would argue it's the second and I would argue that that is often the case in our lives, that it is not that God is absent. It is just that God is not moving and working in the way that we would prefer. It is not that God has nothing to say on the issue. It's that we don't care to listen or to respond to what God has said because it doesn't work to our advantage in the way that we want. So often in our lives, the failure that we ascribe to God is actually our own. Over and over again, we, we fall in love with our own greatness. We fall in love with our own comfort. We fall in love with our own plans and our own processes and our own advancement to, to the dismissal of God. I would argue that that is the greatest issue in American culture today. It is not that God is absent in the American forum. It's that we just don't care. Or we only care in as much as God does what we want him to do in the way we want him to do it. For our good and for our glory. And if he gets a little bit glory, then that's okay. But we're really not all that concerned. And I think this problem is in the church as well. Where we willingly create situations and structures that other other people. And what I mean by othering is that, that we see others as less than. Because if we see them as being worse sinners than us, if we can exclude them, it will elevate us. 
Brothers and sisters, it ought not be that way. We are all sinners. From greatest to least, we see in this situation that that from greatest to least, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. We are all people in need of the promise of God's provision. Will we humbly receive it? So many of the issues we face in our life are the result of human arrogance and indifference to the power and presence of God in our lives. We, like Xerxes, think we've got it all under control with the help of our friends. But in reality, we're just the blind leading the blind. The law of unintended consequence states that the actions of people always have effects that are unanticipated or unintended. What we mean for one purpose, God uses for other. That that law of unintended consequence is generally a negative thing. That that while I planned for this thing and to bring about this result, that it it had an adverse effect that came along with it. But, But the other side is true. Because here we see this incredibly negative thing happen. This terrible thing happens to Queen Vashti. But what's interesting is that the sin of King Xerxes and his nobles actually opens up the avenues for God to bring in the provision of the the, the Messiah figure in this story of Esther, who will be the means through which God brings about his salvation. The fact is that God did not create the mess these men created. But God in his wisdom and mercy is going to use this mess as an avenue to provide deliverance and salvation for his people. God does not make the messes of our lives But God can use them for our good and his glory if we'll trust him and seek his face through it all. Where do we see God moving in our own lives? Where is God moving in our world? Where are those places of absence? And if we look, where might we see God's hand guiding? What does God require for us at such a time as this? Will we faithfully seek and serve him in the midst of our struggles? God is there. God is moving. God is sovereign. Will we submit to his rule and reign? Or we seek to self-aggrandize and to elevate our own will and our own purposes to our own dismay and demise? Father God, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that you would make us aware of your power and presence in our lives. God, that that you would help us to be still and know that you are God, to consider your greatness and your glory, and to seek to follow you every day. Lord, may you surround us with wise men and women who will point us to the truth of your word and your greatness. May we not be so consumed with our own greatness that we forget who you are and who we are. God, guide us, direct us, help us to see your power and presence in our lives and to submit to your will for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen.